0: Event season. Merry Christmas almost, but not quite yet there, but we're on our way to it. I'm Tim, by the way. You know, I, I, I do this here. I, I do want to give a shout out, by the way, because while I get to do this or whatever, uh, this, this place looks all Christmassy uh, thanks to the mind and organization of Samantha Oakleaf and the work of of Nathan, who put some ideas to work to create these trees, and Nathan Palmer, and then we had deacons and elders and small group members here setting up, and then even the the weeks of of Christmas fun like Sweater Sunday, uh, that's the mind of Nick Ridenauer. So, like everything that's going good right now is all because of other people, not me, and I need to give them. Uh, credit for that, because they deserve it, and uh, it has just made this a warm and vibrant morning, so I just want to point that out, give them shout outs, you know? So uh, we are in our, there you, there you go, there you go, I like that. I'm going to hide back here, so they get, anyway, so so we are, uh, we are in our new series uh, called Advent, and you know, Advent is a word that gives a connotation of arrival. And so, you know, Nick did a reading this morning pointing to the uh, second coming or the second arrival of Jesus. Uh, And then in the messages, we're going to look at the the first arrival, uh, because that's why we celebrate Christmas. We we look back and we remember that God sent his one and only son uh, so that we could have life abundant. And so uh, we celebrate that at this time of year. And uh, I have to confess to you also that our passage today is something I've always wanted to do and have never done in my life. I get to preach a sermon on a genealogy. Aren't you excited? (laughs) Woo! Yeah, which I have to also add this too. So uh, I got to join our elders, and we were going through some all day discipleship stuff yesterday. And the, the guy that was leading this course that we are taking made the comment that sometimes we get too far into the weeds and we get all about education instead of transformation when we approach Scripture. And sometimes we pay too much attention to genealogies. And I turned to Blake Cayley and I whispered, I'm preaching on a genealogy tomorrow. <laughs> so anyway, so we're, we're in it. Can't turn back now. So... This is how I want to start. I have this tendency that depending on who you are and how close you are to me, it might be an annoying tendency, and to others it might be an endearing one, but I'm one of those people that I can be in conversation with you one-on-one, or maybe I'm part of a group of people are having a conversation being introverted and in my head, sometimes if I'm in a group setting, I turn into like a fly on the wall, I'm just visible, and I'm just listening in on the dialogue happening. And every now and then, someone will say a word or a phrase that'll connect to a song that just magically appears in my head, and I can't help myself but to start belting out the song and completely ruining the conversation that's happening. Like, for instance, you know, if we were talking and you said, you know, the sky is blue, it doesn't matter if it's July, I might start singing, I'll have a blue Christmas, and they'll be like, I was just pointing out the sky, why are you doing an Elvis impression, you know? Uh, or maybe uh, someone will say the phrase, uh, this is a popular phrase, I don't know if you like this one or not, but people say, it is what it is. Which reminds me of another phrase, same as it ever was. So if you ever know the song by the Talking Heads, once in a lifetime, I start saying, same as it ever was, which gets repeated over and over and over again. I was in the car on the way to lunch with our staff the other day, and someone uh, said the phrase, you know, in the end, you know, the phrase that you say when you're drawing a conclusion or making an astute point. And I started singing this song by Linkin Park that was popular when I was in high school called In the End. And they just looked at me and I was like, I'm sorry I did that. And they're like, "Eh, it's culturally relevant, I guess. (laughs) And you know, we do this with advertisements too. Like if I were to say, give me a break." break. Give me a break, give me a break. Break me off a piece of that. Now, the only person in history that couldn't finish that phrase was Andy Bernard on The Office, if you know, if you know that. So, you know, the thing is, uh, my apologies if it annoys you that I sometimes break out into song, um, but the reason that that happens is we have a tendency as people to experience a present moment and to connect it from something in our past. We do this all the time. And, you know, maybe it's not something as silly as a song. Like, I don't know about you, but, well, this wouldn't be the case for you, but if I smell the smell of fresh-cut grass, I'm immediately taken back to the field that I used to practice in soccer When I was about five years old, by the way, at about five years old was the end of my soccer career. (laughs) But every time I smell fresh cut grass, I am taken back to that place because I remember that smell and I associate it with that. Um, And yes, soccer is a bit difficult for me because I just got to tell you as a Cincinnati sports fan, conference championships aren't my thing these days because my team lost. In the conference, anyway, I won't get into that right now. I'm mourning still. Um, If I'm, if I'm, I've probably said this before. If I hear the song "Hotel California," I'm immediately taken back to my dad's truck with the with the fishing boat attached to the back, and driving down to Santee Cooper in South Carolina to go fishing. That's where I, and windows down, belting it out. Um, and then other Eagles songs come on after that because we were always listening to Eagles, apparently. So um, we do this sort of thing, and I don't know what it is for you, but I bet that you have sights, smells, sounds, words, that the moment you experience them with one of your senses, you're immediately taken back to a particular place, a particular moment that has value And significance for you. And not only that, but we do this with names too. You know, you might know several people that have the same name, but every time you hear a particular name, one face, all the memories all come to mind for you. All the stories. All the shared memories, the legacy, just by hearing a single name. You know, the funny thing about genealogies in the Bible is that we have grown accustomed to uh, reading them. And by reading them, I think if we're honest, and I've been guilty of this, we, we skim them We fumble our way through trying to pronounce the names, which I'm going to do here in a moment, just so you can all laugh at me. Uh, We we just kind of get through them. You know, we want to get to the good stuff. We want to get to the meat. And we don't really know what to do with these names. They're just a list of names and begats and stuff like that. But for the Jewish people at the time of Jesus... And even for the people that were the early Christians that were receiving these gospel stories that we hold near and dear to our faith, when they would not read these genealogies, but when they would hear them told aloud as part of the story, it did something different for them than it does for us. It wasn't just a moment that they just skimmed by, tuned out, so that they could get to the good stuff. Because for them, even though these genealogies, they they carried generations and generations of names, the names spoken told stories, stories that they grew up hearing, stories that they grew up committing to their heart and minds. Stories that held value and significance to their identity and their faith as followers of the one true God. They told the story and all of the memories of of the events about the person's life just by the mere mention of a name. You see, when we celebrate Christmas season and we get into the Advent and we, we we remember and we celebrate the coming of Jesus. We have to remember that the stories of the coming of Jesus, especially in the first gospel that we have, Matthew, the very first chapter, doesn't start with Mary and Joseph and the flight to Egypt and the no room in the house and all the stuff that we remember. It starts with a roster of names. It starts with a lineage that connects Jesus to the story of the people of God. And as we're about to find out, it doesn't just connect him to the story of the past, but it connects Jesus to the story of where God is moving by sending his son. And so, yeah, we're going to look at this genealogy and I don't expect you every time you go through the the story to stop and start digging into every name, although it can be a fun exercise and we don't have time to go by every single name and tell you the story associated. But I hope maybe that when we look at this story, this introduction to Jesus that shares his lineage, that, that shares his identity, that shares his power, that shares the grace of God and the work of God through his Son, that's being communicated in this list of names, that we might see it and appreciate it more differently, and that it might give us hope in this season that is meant to inspire hope, because we look back and we remember Jesus has come into the world, and he is coming again. And that is a wonderful story to celebrate at this time of year. So, I invite you to join me as I read slash fumble through, The genealogy of Jesus. It's in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And it goes as follows A record of the ancestors of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah. Whose mother was Tamar? Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Aram. Aram was the father of Amminadab. Amminadab was the father of Nahshon. Nahshon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asaph. Asaph was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Joram. Joram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham was the father of Ahaz. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Amos. Amos was the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers. This was at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abiud. Abiud was the father of Eliakim. Eliakim was the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok was the father of Akim. Akim was the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar was the father of Methan. Methan was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 generations from the exile to Babylon to the Christ. There's the lineage of Jesus for you. And it's an interesting story when you dig into the details. The most important point here is that in Matthew's first verse, he almost gives us, you know, we're used to, uh, people have put headers so that we kind of know what's coming in the text those are later editions, but Matthew actually gives us a header. Like we didn't need that first one that says genealogy of Jesus or whatever it says in your Bible, because Matthew in his first verse gives us the header that we need. He says, a record of the ancestors of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. And that verse, that header is packed full of meaning. First of all, in the the Greek, he actually doesn't say Jesus who is Christ. He says Jesus Christ. You know, a lot of people talk about Christ as like, is that his last name or is it a title or, or you know, how does that function? And it, it actually is both. By the time Matthew's writing this down, it's not just a title, but it's become attached to Jesus' name because that's who he is. He is Christ, which means Messiah or anointed one or king. He was the one the people were waiting for even if they didn't know that he was the one that they were waiting for. And not only that, but in this little header, he gives us a snapshot of the lineage that he's about to share with Jesus. He says that he is the son of Abraham and the son of David. And that's accomplishing two things. One, if you know the story of Genesis, you'll know that Abraham is the one that is called out to get up and go to the land God has promised. And I will make you a great nation. Even though Abraham and Sarah couldn't conceive and give birth to a son until God did something to open her womb. God made his promise and his people come about through Abraham and his wife Sarah. And so by stating that Jesus is the son of Abraham, he is pointing back and saying, My people, Israel, it is out of you that the Messiah, the Christ, is coming. But not only that, he mentions son of David. And David is the revered king during the time, the start of the kings. You'll know that David wasn't the first king, because when the people clamored for a king, they were given Saul, and Saul looked the part, acted the part, until he didn't. And God removed him from the throne. And he called out this son of Jesse, the youngest of siblings. But he viewed him as a man after his own heart. And David's reign was powerful and committed deeply to the memory of the people. And it was only the heirs to his throne that belonged on the throne. So by saying that Jesus is the son of David, it's not just tracing his lineage to the people through Abraham, but tracing his lineage as a royal heir to the kingship. He is not only of the people, but he's of the royal line. And so, God... And his infinite wisdom gives us, through Matthew, this genealogy, this lineage of Jesus, to show that Jesus fits right in to the expected Christ that they were waiting for. It gives the people that hear this the opportunity to read or to hear these names, to, continue, to consider the stories behind the names And to reflect on both the highs and lows of the history of their people and to recognize that despite the highs and the lows, that God through this lineage has brought about His Messiah to save His people. But it gets better. In verses 3, 5, and 6, there are four women named. Tamar, Rahab. Ruth. And I'm blanking on one here, even though I just said four. I'm trying to find it here. Uh, I'll come back to it in a second, but there are four women named here. What was that? Thank you, Bathsheba. That's why I couldn't find it. The wife of Uriah. Thank you. See, I love that. All right, Bathsheba's mentioned here. And all four of them are unique and maybe not for the reasons that you've heard before. You see, some have mentioned the fact that maybe in this genealogy, Matthew is showing us these women that might have had irregular births because he's setting us up for the highly irregular, miraculous birth that Jesus will come via. Or, or maybe, maybe he's pointing out these women because, well, they've got a, a bit of a messy track record when you read their story. And those are good observations and to at least a degree true, but there's one that we often don't catch. All four of these women are women that come from outside of the camp of the people of God. They are grafted onto the people of God by their acts of obedience. They are adopted into the people of God by their obedience. Because they're outside of the people of God, do you know what the Jewish people considered or called the people that were not a part of their people at the time of Jesus? Gentile. They're the other people. And that word Gentile might not have been used of these women, but they certainly, when you go back and look at their stories, they fit the bill. And that's really powerful to consider because God has a history of adopting outsiders and making them insiders. And those women that were outsiders that became insiders because of their faithfulness, their faithful decision to be obedient and to step into the family of faith, God not only grafted them into the people, but these outsiders ended up, oh, what do you know, into the lineage of Jesus, the Messiah. So if you're keeping score at home, this genealogy actually does three things. It establishes that Jesus is a part of the people of Israel. It establishes that Jesus is a part of the royal line. And it establishes that Jesus comes from a line that indicates God's mission not only within this line of people, but beyond it. Matthew, if you read his gospel, will constantly make allusions or overt references to the Scriptures of the people to show repeatedly that Jesus fits in and is who he claims, who Matthew claims, who the people that follow him claim him to be. But Matthew never stops there. He always looks ahead to thinking and showing how Jesus not only is the Messiah for the people Israel but for the people outside the people like I don't know you and me see you didn't know that you can get all that just from reading some names from a genealogy and we haven't even scratched the surface But here's the point. Through this genealogy, Matthew is telling us something very simple. The same thing that would have been received and heard and thought about and remembered by the very first people that heard this genealogy at the outset of any reading publicly of the Gospel of Matthew in any church setting. And that is that the arrival of Jesus makes God's story our story. The arrival of Jesus makes God's story our story. If you were with us at all during our series in the book of Exodus, which was the one that we just did right before this, I kept repeating an idea or a phrase. And that is that the Exodus story, by virtue of the fact that unless you have Jewish lineage, the Exodus story is not ours or my story. But the God behind the Exodus is our God. And for the Gentile followers of Jesus that chose to follow Jesus despite not being part of that story, They became a part of God's story by virtue of following the Messiah that came from that group of people. It's God's great saving mission. Started with one person that became a people. And out of that people, through the highs, the lows, the successful kings, which there aren't that many of them, (laughs) and they're only partially successful, by the way, and the failure kings, through the triumphs and the exiles, through the acts of obedience and the acts of faithlessness of the people. God brought Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, the God who saves, born of a virgin. To come and be our rescuer, our restorer, and our redeemer. We once were not a people far from God. But because God sent Jesus, we too, like those ladies in the genealogy, have the opportunity to be adopted as sons and daughters of God, Most High, Because of Jesus. And when you read this story, and maybe read it with fresh eyes, maybe you try to put yourself in the sandals of the original hearers, it becomes apparent that by telling the story in this way, by giving us a long list of names, That there's more to it than just names. But a story to be told. A story to be remembered. A story to look back and then look forward. To embrace the coming of Jesus. And to look forward to the hope that He will come again. All wrapped up in that story. So I told you at the beginning that I do that silly thing with songs. I do it. Actually, the funny thing is I was, sometimes I talk to people about what my sermon's going to be, which I feel bad because then they have to hear it twice uh, in the morning. uh, No one wants to hear two sermons in one day. Uh, Just kidding. And I was talking to to Tyler this morning about it, and he got this grin on his face, and he kind of looked down, and he goes, yeah, you do do that. I'm trying to figure out if it's endearing or annoying to him. I'm going to keep going and see what happens. But you know, there's something else that I've, I've grown accustomed to doing in my life. I, my, you know, my, my life's elevator pitch, if you ask me what I want my life to be about, I want my life to be, one, marked by that when I interact with people, I help the light bulb go on for them with regard to their faith. That I can help them, maybe nudge them along to whatever their next step is. That's what I care about doing for people because I had people in my own life that have done that for me. And one of the ways that that's happened for me is I've grown a love for the Scriptures. I've told you before, I'm a Bible nerd. I like to read it. I like to listen to things about it. I watch stuff on YouTube about it. I could be watching more sports stuff, but I watch Bible geek stuff. I do still watch sports stuff. Don't worry. I do normal things too. But the thing is, is like I just, I get engrossed with it. And I've had people in my life that made me excited to read it. I have people that have spurred me on to do that. And one of the things that I've noticed, and I will tell you, I'm not the great memorizer of chapter and verse of Bible verses. I wish I was. I had a professor named uh, James Snyder. He looked like Colonel Sanders at CCU when I went there. He'd always carry around a tin coffee mug, um, and he would just like dangle it around as he's walking. And I'm like, that's going to spill, man. But anyway, uh, he would do this, and he would get up in class, and he would literally, without anything in front of him, he would have... Bible memorized and just spout it out. And I was like, oh my gosh, how do you do that? Apparently it takes an entire life and to the point of you looking like Colonel Sanders to get there. I'll get there maybe one day, but here's the point. I may not be good at reciting verbatim everything, but I have noticed that in the same way that I can be in conversation and hear the word blue and start rattling off an Elvis song, that I can also be in conversation and suddenly a story, a passage, a verse will come to mind. And oftentimes when I'm in those conversations, I'm sitting in front of someone that's at a point where they need comfort, they need guidance, a shoulder to lean on. And no, I don't want to beat them with a Bible. But in that moment, I want to give them words of comfort. And I've noticed that it just comes to me because people in my life have nudged me toward that level of commitment. Christmas time is a time in life where we make memories. The sights, the smells, the sounds, the names, the stories. Yes, the joyous highs and the heartbreaking lows imprint memories within us where we remember Christmas's past. Maybe we long to get back to better days or to have those moments with people we loved. Maybe we look forward to creating new memories because the past ones are so difficult that we want something new so badly. And there are many moments of warmth, lights, songs, hot drinks, good food, good company that can provide us with those moments. But I've got to be honest with you. There's one thing that I think we often overlook about as bad as a genealogy in the book of Matthew. And it's the opportunity to make memories of commitment to our faith. This season is an opportunity to reflect on the good news that Jesus has come into the world and to make that part of our sights and sounds and smells. It is an opportunity to show love to our family, our friends, our neighbors, and yes, even our enemies, which that baby boy that we celebrate will grow up and tell us to love your enemies. And those opportunities of faith and obedience, give us an opportunity to commit more memory to the sights, sounds, and smells of the season. And so, as a practical thing, and if we can find it, I ask the QR code. I know it's like We're gonna, you're going to throw a QR code up right now at the end of this. Yeah, I am a QR code. I want to invite you to not just think about the story, but join us to read the story. Let it become imprinted on your minds and your heart. Let it be mixed in with the moment. Maybe you like to read at 6 a.m. with your coffee, and it's still dark out, but you've got lights on in the house, Christmas lights even, and you'll read these stories of the coming of Jesus, and maybe even the second coming of Jesus as you celebrate Advent. And you'll commit those to memory, and, and, the, and every time you see those lights or experience the warmth of the moment, you will think about that story. Maybe because you're reading this together as a church family, you start to have conversations with your fellow churchgoers. Maybe it's when you come into the foyer. Maybe it's when you get together throughout the week, and all of a sudden, that thing that you're reading together Becomes a part of that memory. So when you see each other, you don't just see a face and you don't just connect a name, but you connect a story of what God has done. This is a season to be able to make memories. Let's make memories of faith. Because the earliest followers of Jesus, when they recounted the story of Jesus, they didn't just hear a list of names when they heard the story. They heard a communal memory that they were able to key in their present life of faith into so that they could continue to have the hope that God saves. What better way to celebrate Advent and Christmas than to make similar memories by taking those steps, those practical moments of faith, and committing them to our hearts in our minds. So that maybe we're not just rattling off song lyrics. And interrupting conversation. Which I'm still going to do. Occasionally. But maybe, just maybe. What will come to mind and what will come to your heart. Is the story of Jesus. The story of God. That because of his arrival. Has become our story one of the ways that we do this memory thing by the way is at communion isn't it funny that when Jesus told his disciples commanded them to take communion on the regular that he said do this in what thank you in remembrance of me do this in remembrance of me When we take communion, we are participating in something very similar to what the people of God have always done. We remember. In the present, we do something that makes us remember what God has done, what He is still doing, and what He one day will do in the culmination of things. And so, (laughs) communion isn't just an, an Easter remembrance thing. It is a arrival of Jesus remembrance thing too. And so I invite you to take a moment and reflect on the arrival of Jesus and the good news that comes from that. And after our moment of reflection, we will take communion together as one church family. invite you to take this cup and take this bread and eat it in remembrance of him. And I invite you to take and drink in remembrance of him. Please pray with me. Dear Lord God, I know that this this season of Christmas is one that I, I have many friends that uh, oh, they get so into it and it brings them so much joy and I am grateful for that. And I know many friends and I know friends in this room that this has been a hard season and despite the fact that they want to have joy they Experience heartbreak this, this season is so powerful that it can uh, do so much it can make us reflect so much on what we have and what we don't have who we're with and who we're not what we miss and what we want to make new but God, I know that in this season, we are given an opportunity to remember that you are with us. That you want to be with us when we are in our highs. When we are experiencing our joy. And we also know that you're with us in this season when we need comfort. When we can only be comforted by you because it seems like nothing else will do the trick. So God, I pray that in this season, first that you will give us your grace and your heart for one another. To be people that will celebrate and and be joyous with those who are. And to weep and to be a shoulder for those that need to cry. Help us to be your hands and feet to love one another as you have called us to do. But I also pray, God, that as we go about this season, that no matter what we're experiencing, that you will help us to be reminders, rememberers to one another that you have sent your son, Jesus. That you've sent him because you love us that you have sent him because no matter how bad and wayward and broken and sinful we have been, that you want to redeem us and restore us, that you want to find us where we are but not leave us there, that you want to heal us, that you want to be a part of our praise. And I pray, God, that No matter what we are facing, that you will help us to cling to that story of hope, to have confidence in who you are, what you have done, what you continue to do, and what you will one day do in the culmination of all things. We thank you so much for your love, your compassion, your grace, your righteousness, your glory. And it's in your son Jesus' name that we pray, amen.